My name is Andy Reed. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Actually, it's, I live north of Dallas on a small little piece of property. And uh, people always say, well, you know, who do you live there with? Well, my wife is there, uh, six dogs, 25 chickens, uh, three cats, and uh, two cows and two donkeys. Three cats. That's three cats. In my opinion, that's three cats too many. Ah, they're the cat lovers. <laughs> well, we're going to go ahead and get started because, uh, as a friend of mine said, if you're not going when the late people get there, they don't know that they're late. So we're going to, we're going to begin. Father, thank you for our time today. I ask that you'd guide and direct our discussion. And Father, uh, give me the words to speak that will bring honor and glory to you. And, Father, we're thankful for your, who you are, what you mean to us, and the grace that you bestow in our life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to uh, talk about a concept that I call ministry partnership development, which, in my opinion, is the key to effectively raising uh, resources for life and ministry. Some of you have said, well, how, how long have you been doing this? And uh, more years than you want to know and probably more years than most of you are, are, have been alive. Uh, which, you know, when they, whenever you're witnessing, they always tell you one thing people can't argue with is your testimony, right? So I will start out by saying God has been gracious and he's shown his grace to my wife and I for over 40 years in terms of providing the resources for our ministry uh, as we've been full-time vocational missionaries. But today we're going to talk about how to address uh, correct thinking, which are your attitudes, biblical principles and practical principles, uh, are th- as a key or keys to effectively developing resources. Uh, this session will hopefully explain to you why people give, how effectively uh, you should go about gaining their support and involvement, ways to grow your list of prospects, and what the basis is for successful long-term partnership. So anyone wanting to increase the involvement of others in ministry and increase their financial partnership, you're in the right session. As a way of of introduction, last year, 2014, which is the most recent statistics we have, 358.3%. $3.8 $3.8 billion were given to charity in 2014. So the first myth we're going to uh, dispel is there's not enough money out there. Uh, obviously, there's, there's great amounts of money, and it's being given. This is the highest total in the report's 60-year history. And basically, as the economy has uh, increased, so has giving, and uh, that counted for 7.1% growth in charitable giving in 2014 over 2013. So where did the money come from? The greatest segment is from individuals. 72% of all the giving came from individuals. 8% came from bequests, that is, wills and trusts and those kinds of things. Combine those two things together and 80% of the money comes from individuals because the individuals have to leave the bequests. Foundations accounted for 15% and corporations for 5%. So that's where the money came from. The top six uses uh, of funds, religion accounted for the greatest percentage at 32%, education 8%, human services 12%, gifts to foundations uh, 12%, health 8%, and public benefit 7%. So a total of 67% came to sectors that are going to be interested in giving to the kind of causes everyone in this room represents. So, first of all, I'm going to make a statement that I enjoy raising and maintaining support. And I know now you're thinking, he's crazy, why am I in this session? Well, while it's one of the most challenging things that I've ever been involved in in my life, it's also one of the most rewarding experiences for me as a missionary. Why? Because 
It really builds my faith as I see God move his people to invest in the ministry and that he has called me to and to serve and place that calling on my heart. And the other thing is, it's also a great time to review what God has done. I love getting together with our partners, ministry partners, because I can relate to them what God has done in and through the ministry that he's called us to and we've become partners together. Uh, by the way, if I slip up and happen to use the term donors, just, you know, somebody wave at me and say, you know, you're using that terrible term. The reason why I don't like to use the term donors, a friend of mine said, you know, a donor is somebody who gives but loses. You know, a donor is somebody, a kidney donor, gives a kidney, they don't ever get it back. As, as opposed to a partnership where two people come together to give 100% to accomplish a specific goal or, or topic. So I want to begin by talking about three kinds of correct thinking. First is Great Commission thinking, second is faith thinking, and third is principle thinking. These are all on that outline if you've picked one up on on the back. First of all, Great Commission thinking. Ministry partnership development is a ministry. It's not something you do to have a ministry. That's another myth, that I'm going to raise my support so I can go do my ministry. Ladies and gentlemen, raising your support is part of your ministry. As missionaries, we really have to run two ministries. One to the target audience that God has called us to serve, and one to those who have called, he has called to partner with us in the ministry. So, it's a part of getting people involved in the Great Commission. You know, If you're going, you have that luxury of being able to go. You're not restricted by geography, age, family situation, or or whatever. Many people are not able to do that, and so therefore their involvement in the Great Commission is by praying for you, providing support, and becoming partners with you. Second is faith. We have to believe God, and we have to work as unto the Lord. If we really believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do, then we ought to do our work as unto unto him. Uh, Bill Bright used to say, faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. Well, that's true here too. It's true of any faith-based activity. The more we do it, the more we see God's faithfulness, we see his grace in our life, and so therefore... Uh, our faith increases as well. Third is principle thinking. And there's two things when we talk about principles. First of all, techniques. That's typically the way we tend to live our lives. Techniques do work in the short term, usually not in the long term, unless they're based upon principles. Principles are the basis for our success. And we're going to talk about some principles this afternoon. But before we do that, you know, the Apostle Paul spoke about partnership in Philippians 4, 10 to 19. First of all, in verse 10, he said the Philippians were concerned for him, but they lacked opportunity. He said the Philippians did well to share with them when they did have that opportunity. The Philippians sent a gift more than once for his needs and for the needs of the saints that he was ministering to. And then Paul wrote about the motivation. He said, not that I seek the gift itself, but rather I seek for the profit that will incur or benefit your account. So, you know, we have to check what is our motivation. Are we just looking for the money so I can go do my ministry? You know, that's, that's looking at your ministry partners as an ATM. Just give me your money so I can go do my ministry and, you know, forget about you. Well, that's not partnership. That's not following biblical principles. That's not what Paul was, was speaking about. He also said that he received everything in full and had an abundance. And he said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
bottom line, the summary of that comment, in my opinion, is called grace. We do our part. God moves on the parts of, of others. And by his grace, we're able to carry out the ministry that he's, he's called us to. So, what are some principles for uh, raising funds? First of all, to realize God owns it all. You know, many times we talk about, it's my car, it's my house, it's my bank account. Well, the reality is, we don't own any of that. God's just given it to us to be stewards over, and so we have to realize he owns it all. Secondly, for the most part, we're going to be going to Christians. And Christians, by their very nature, are givers. Christians were created in God's image. God's a giving God. So we can understand that Christians are givers. Thirdly, God wants me to ask. You know, if we don't ask, we don't receive. What I sow, I will reap. If I don't work hard at this, if I don't see this as part of my ministry, I'm not going to be very successful in either the short term or the long term. And then five, our Father's abundant supply. His resources have no limits, do they? Hello? (laughs) So the first key in terms of ministry partnership development is to realize that people need to give. Now, as, as far as the background, as I mentioned, we're created in God's image. God's a giving God. And so therefore... People have that need to give because God's a giving God. We're like God, created in his image. We have that need to give. Now, this is just a a two-question test, the only test you'll get today. How many people know uh, The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? Most people know that? Okay. That's the first question you all passed. Second question, of the three main characters... Bob Cratchit, Tiny Tim, and Scrooge. Who is the abnormal one? What? Huh? Scrooge was the abnormal one because he had no capacity to give. Even though Tiny Tim and Bob Cratchit had much less, they were openly welcomed into their home and gave him what they had. So he was the abnormal one, not the normal one. So what are ten reasons why people give? Now, I will tell you, not all of these are biblical reasons. But they are reasons that we have found from research over the years that people give. First of all, they want to be a partner in something worthwhile. In other words, they, when they give, they want to be part of something that is accomplishing something of significance. As Christians and representing Christian ministries... We have that great opportunity because there's nothing more worthwhile than giving to the cause to Christ. Secondly, to participate vicariously. As I mentioned earlier, not everybody is able to go. Maybe it's because of age, geography. We had a lady one time who graduated from college. She made a commitment in her state to become a teacher, and she had to give two years for every year pardon me, that she was in college which meant that she couldn't go anywhere for eight years unless she wanted to pay back all of her student costs. So she participated vicariously by being involved financially with other ministries. Thirdly, they want to accomplish a specific purpose. They see a need, and they want to help meet that need. Fourth, they give because they want to achieve or maintain a sense of self-worth. As they give, they want to see themselves as generous, happy givers. And that increases their sense of self-worth. Five, just because they love Christ. It's a way for that tangible way for them to say thank you back to God for what he's done in their life. Six, to meet a specific need. They say, okay, here's a need. I want, to, I want to fully meet that need. We had a gentleman one time, we had a situation in our ministry where some laws changed and we needed to raise significant amount of additional funds 
in order to do that. This person had never given to us in the past, but we had met with him several times over the years, met with he and his wife. And when we shared that need, he said, I want to meet that need, and ended up giving $450 a month uh, for every year until his death. Seven, they give because they receive a blessing. As one of our ministry partners says, I keep trying, but I can't give out, out, out give God. The more I give, the more he blesses me. It's such a blessing. He also said, it took me a while to, to realize that, he said, but he said, I realized finally it's like, you know, if I hold everything in my hand, God can't pour anything more into it. But when I hold it open and say, here, God, use this, then he can pour more into it. Eight, they give for financial security reasons. Now, this is kind of two sides of the same coin. First of all, they want to honor God with their gifts. And as they honor him, they believe that he will continue to give them the resources to continue to give. The other side is they give out of fear. They're afraid if they stop giving, God will quit giving them the resources to give. Nine, just a basic intrinsic need to give. Uh, there's a, a book called Mega Gifts. If you've never read it, I would suggest you, you try to find it. I think you can still find it on, on Amazon. But this author interviewed people who gave uh, to various causes, and they gave million-dollar gifts. And most of them said, I, I gave because someone asked, and I had a need to give. And that leads us to the number 10, re, 10th reason, because they were asked. One pastor was sharing with a group of other ministers around a table one day, and he was telling these other pastors about one of the ladies in his church Many times, one of, uh, for a long time, one of his many, for his long time favorites, or if I could just speak. And uh, all during that time, she often said, you know, of all she hoped to do for the church and for the cause of Christ when she died. Because she had no family to, to leave her, her wealth to. And so, you know, finally the time came. She was in the hospital. The doctors had said she didn't have long to go to live. And. Uh, one night she passed in, into, the, into the night. And this pastor was saying, you know, while she was in the hospital, I would take her note cards and go and sit with her and pray with her and hold her hand. And, uh, but after she passed, I found from, out from her attorney that while she was in, in the hospital, she gave her entire estate to a Midwestern university. And he said, gentlemen, let's be honest. You know, I was incredulous. What happened, I asked the, the attorney. And he said, well, while she was there, uh, this president of the university came, shared with her what her resources could accomplish, and he asked her for a gift. That's all he did is he asked her for a gift. And she gave, gave the gift. And he realized, and he was told all of his pastor friends, he said, in all the time I just realized I never asked her for a gift. I just took it for granted. So giving requires asking. Again, if you look at those people that were interviewed, the number one reason that they gave for why they gave million-dollar gifts was because someone asked. Now, I have asked for million-dollar gifts, and I've seen million-dollar gifts given. I've never seen a million-dollar gift given that wasn't asked for. There, that may be out there somewhere. This is not in my experience. When you ask, the more specific you are, the more believable you are. If you have an opportunity and it's going to cost $403.75, that's more believable than I have a need for $400. So the more specific you are, the more believable you are. There's a need to ask often. But there's a caveat to that, and that is that I'm going to start with the frequency of the ask, and I'll go back to the deferred gifts. It's only viable if that's not the only time they hear from you. 
<clears throat> for instance, if I come to Louisville once a year and I go see my friend uh, Arliss and I call him up and say, you know, hey, I'm going to be in Louisville. Can I have lunch with you? And he says, sure. And we go to have lunch. I tell him about the ministry I'm involved in, ask him if he'd like to become involved, share with him a project because he's generous and, and a giving person. He says, sure. And he writes a check and becomes a partner in the, in the project. Then he doesn't hear from me for another year. And I come back and say, hey, I'm going to come speak at the conference again. Can we go have lunch? He says, okay. So we go and have lunch, and I explain to him what another project, asking for a gift. Because he's generous, he gives again. Third year, hey, I'm coming to Louisville. Can we have lunch? What's his impression to me? The only time he ever hears from me is when I, when I want money. Okay, on the other hand, I go see my friend Bob, and uh, at least twice a month, we go out to lunch and we have lunch. And I share with him things about what God's doing in through the ministry. And once a year, I sit down with him and say, Bob, you know, here's a project. Would you like to be involved? Because he's a generous, giving person. He says yes, and he, and he gives, becomes a partner. Another year goes by. We have continue to have lunch together, send him letters, note cards, meet, uh, meet with him. And 12 months go by, and I share another project with him. Now, what's his impression to me? Okay. What's that? Faithful steward? No, I'm, I'm interested in him, not just his money. Yet the frequency of the ask is exactly the same. I ask both people one time a year. The difference is whether they hear from me in between time. So going back to deferred gifts, most of us have deferred gifts. Now, I'm not talking about the legal technical term like wills and trusts and things that people give when they're they're deceased and, and those gifts are deferred. What I am talking about is most of you have had a ministry in a person's life or numerous people's lives They've never had a way to, to give back to you. Well, this is a way for them to say, I want to be part. In other words, you've been building up deferred gifts, and now when you give them the opportunity, uh, they will give. Third thing is you need to ask for many causes and opportunities that you have. You need to find out what is the burden God has put on the heart of that particular individual or couple. You know, all of us usually have one primary means or, op- or burdens that, that we are, want to be involved in. For most of you, that's going to be medical missions or some kind of medical health care. So you need to find others that share that same burden. Now, many have people have secondary causes that they will give to as well. But that's why you ask for a number of causes and opportunities so you can find out what motivates the person and so you can give them something that they're interested in supporting. D, ask for increased commitment and participation. One of the things that is occurring in the philanthropic community is that millennials are are not stopping giving. They're continuing to give. But where they give is where they can, they can be involved. So you need to look for opportunities for them to participate as well. Now, what are some barriers to our asking? Well, number one is fear of rejection. We're afraid people are going to reject us. Or we feel intimidated. Or three, we don't know how to challenge properly. Let me go back to the fear of rejection. For the most part, we're going to be going to other Christians. And the Bible tells us that each of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is not going to war against himself. So when we go to Christians, we don't have to feel, uh, we don't have to be fearful that people are going to reject us. Secondly, we don't have to feel intimidated. Everybody has the right to say no. And that doesn't intimidate me if they do say no. Because I'm just out being the mouthpiece, if you will. It's kind of like sharing Christ. When I share Christ with somebody, if they reject the message, 
That's not me that they're rejecting. They're rejecting the message of, of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to be in, intimidated. Knowing how to challenge properly is important, and we'll get into more of that in, in a few minutes. F, people tend to give for emotional reasons, but they justify their giving with logic. God has created us as an emotional being. You know, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, go and sell all that you have. The scriptures say he went away. Anybody remember how he went away? Sad. See, there was an emotional response because we have been created as, as emotional beings. If there is no emotion, and I'm not talking about playing on people's emotions or emotionalism. Emotion is what causes us to take some action. But then they justify their giving with logic. Is it logical for me to support this cause or this person or this program once they decide, yes, I want to support the ministry? People like to give for future plans. You know, history establishes credibility. Current programs and projects are generally what people support out of their income. But most major gifts come not because of what you're going to do this year, but rather what are you going to give in the future. So we need to plan, and we need to express that planning to other people. I have to tell you this, this funny story. I was with a fella, done some coaching with him. We went to see a major donor, and he said, you know, Andy, what, what do I share? I said, well, you know, what are you going to need? And he said, well, you know, over, over the next five years, I'm probably going to need $20 million if we're going to accomplish what I think God has called, called us to do. And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure I would make that my first ask. I said, what, what do you need this year? And he said, well, quite frankly, uh, about a million too. And I said, okay, well, if he asks, share that with him. So we're sitting there, and I was across the room, and this particular gentleman and uh, his wife were there. And so he said to my friend, he says, well, you know, what do you need? And so he looked at me, and I kind of nodded my head, like, yeah, go ahead. He goes, well, for the next five years, $20 million. <laughs> this businessman, in the comfort of his home, went, whoa! You know, and he goes, um, what about this year? And the guy looked at me and started laughing. And so he told him. And the gentleman, uh, once he understood what the, the million dollars was going to accomplish, uh, made a commitment and over the next 12 months gave $1.2 million. So uh, the past gives credibility uh, but doesn't motivate future gifts. H, people like to give what they're expected to give. Most people want to have their giving accepted. And it's really hard to feel good about something if you don't know whether you've met the mark or not. So when you are able to share expectations with people, as long as they're reasonable, people will try to meet the expectations you share. Whatever you can do is a recipe for failure. There's a, a currently a, uh, an advertisement for a secular cause and they ask for $19 a month. And at the end, they say, of course, every gift will be appreciated. Every time I hear that commercial, I want to say, okay, so if I send you a penny, you're going you're to appreciate that I spent 49 cents to send you one penny, and you're going to appreciate my gift. I doubt it. Okay, so whatever you can do is a recipe for failure. When giving less than people are able to give, they're generally embarrassed. Because what they feel is, you don't think I can give a larger gift than that. Now, that has to be within reason. Uh, we researched the foundation, set up for a, the particular president of that uh, ministry to go see the foundation. We said, now, look, here's the total assets. This is their largest gift, their average gift. This is the gift you ought to ask for. He got in front of the board, got so excited about what he was sharing about, he asked for more money than they totally had in assets. They were not uh, embarrassed or flattered. They were uh, 
politely showed him the, the, the door. When they're asked to give more than they're able, they're flattered, as long as it's within reason. And many people will try to stretch and meet your expectation. The fourth key is asking for referrals. The bottom line goal of asking for referrals is to develop qualified leads that can be seen personally under favorable conditions. When we are ministering to our our partners, we don't minister to just those people that are supporting us financially or in prayer. We always have a group of people that we're developing a relationship with and cultivating their understanding of the ministry and developing our relationship so that when there is a need, they might, they might respond. If you're, if you're really going to achieve uh, superior results, asking for, and, uh, for, asking for research, referrals must become as natural as breathing itself. When I, when I say that, this is one of the key differences If you're just starting out, whether it takes you six months to raise your support or two years to raise your support. A good friend of mine didn't want to ask for referrals. It took him over two years to develop his support so he could report to his ministry assignment. Now, you can say, well, it wasn't that God's plan. I would say God allowed it to happen but I'm not sure it was his plan because God really called him to do the ministry to the target audience. And because he didn't follow a, a, a proven strategy, he continued to invest time that most of the time was, was not well spent. Uh, there were many times he didn't even have appointments. So he really wasn't even ministering to those that were partnering with him. So how do you ask for referrals? You don't just say, Well, Mr. Jones, can you give me some referrals? Referrals are a technical term that we use to refer to finding others that would be interested in hearing about the ministry and considering becoming partners. One of the ways to do that is by suggesting categories. If I'm with my my friend, uh, Mr. Jackson, and I say, Mr. Jackson, are there some friends of yours that would be interested in hearing about the ministry? He's probably going to say, no, I can't think of anybody. Give me, give me some time to think about it and call me back. But if I say, Mr. Jackson, are there two or three others that work with you uh, down at the courthouse that you think would be interested? Or are there two or three other people in your Bible study or in your Sunday school class? Whenever you suggest categories, it takes that vast universe of people down to a smaller group and they can process. And generally, they're going to come up with two or three names that they can, they can give you. Second is asking for referrals using a, a directory. If, if people are involved in church, they've got a church directory. If they're involved in a civic club like Kiwanis or Rotary, they've got a directory. If they're involved in the women's club, they've got a directory. And so many times you can ask them, I know you're involved in XYZ. Would you happen to have a a directory that you might flip through to see if God brings anyone to your mind that would share our interest in whatever it is you're doing? Thirdly is asking for referrals using a pre-compiled list. For those of you that have raised support in the past, I'm sure you've had this experience. Someone will say, well, have you talked to so-and-so? I know they give lots of money. Well, no. No. Could you introduce me? Well, no, I don't know them. I just know they have that, that reputation. Well, it doesn't do any good if they can't introduce you. But you can put that name on a list and show it to other people and say, you know, several people have mentioned this is a person I ought to be speaking with. Is there any chance you would know them? I taught this concept to a small Christian school that we were working with in, uh, in the Dallas area, and I was having them research foundations. I said, go into the research and find all the board members of the foundations, put together a list, and show me the list next time we get together. So they did. I said, because you're going to be using this list when you meet with people regarding this campaign. 
And so they showed me the list, and I'm going down the list, and there was Jack Sims. I'm going, hmm, interesting. My son's soccer coach is named Jack Sims. So a day or two later when we had uh, soccer practice, I said to Jack, I said, by the way, I was, and I recanted the story I just shared with you, and said, and before I even got finished, he said, yeah, that's me. See, I then became the referral. I shared with him about what this Tristan school was doing, asked if it was possible to set up an appointment. He said, sure, set up the appointment, and they got a $15,000 gift from that foundation. So that's how a pre-compiled list can benefit you. Prospecting is the lifeblood of ministry. If you're not doing it as a regular, systematic part of what it is you're doing as you relate to your, your ministry partners, you're going to come back and you're going to say, I've run out of context. I don't know what to do. I would rather have an opportunity to speak with someone when I'm introduced to that person than if I have to pick up the phone book. And if you come to me and say, Andy, I've run out of context, I'll muster all the compassion that I know and say, have you called every name in the phone book? It's a little funnier than that. Okay, so who do you want to contact? Well, you want to contact people with the ability and the capacity to give, but more importantly, the desire. Just because a person has money doesn't mean they're going to give it. If they don't have a desire to be involved in what it is God has called you to do, just because they have the money doesn't mean they're going to give it. I shared with a a ministry partner of ours an opportunity. I thought it was in his area of of expertise, of of interest. And I I shared it with him. And I said, you know, I asked him basically to make a matching gift of $40,000. And he said, well, let me think about it. He says, I have to tell you right now I'm not inclined to do it because I'm involved in several other things very similar to that. He said, but give me a couple weeks and call me back. So I called him back. And I asked him, you know, have you had a chance to think about it? He said, yeah. He said, you know, I told you I was involved in some other things very similar. These were his exact words. But because of our relationship, I'm willing to make a gift of $5,000. Now, he didn't do what I asked him to do, but he still gave a gift because he had desire to give, and it was based on our relationship. If you work with a well-organized file, you're going to find it hard to get through all the names that you get in contact with all the prospects that you have. Many times, we roll them over from from year to year. And in times like these, the messenger is more important than ever. So you need to try to find third-party endorsements to increase the giver's confidence and excitement about your ministry. One of the things that I often share is, Try to put together a list, of, a reference list of anywhere from four to eight people who would be willing to have you share their name with others as people that could give testimony to what it is you're doing, what God's called you to. The fifth key is love. It determines how quickly you raise your support. It also determines how well you maintain your support. Another way to say love is being actively interested in developing a relationship with people. The most fundamental step in ministry partnership development is a thank you letter, a thank you note, even an email, but not a text. Texts do not carry very much importance, and you always have to be careful of autocorrect as I've found out, unfortunately. (laughs) The the process of sending thank you notes or emails, you're avoiding ingratitude. You're not taking them for granted. You're saying, I'm interested in you as a person, not just in the money that you you can give. So what is effectively ministry, what is effective ministry partnership development? I think this is on your sheet, but it is basically a presentation of the right cause. And I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, is there any cause more right than the cause of Christ? The answer is no. 
to the right prospect by the right person asking for the right amount at the right time in the right way. That's what effective ministry partnership development, and this is, I'm pretty sure it's on your, on your sheet. What I mean by that is determine what is the right amount to ask for so you're not over-challenging anybody or under-challenging them. Who is the right prospect? I'm not going to waste my time going to people that don't have an interest in the Great Commission. It's a waste of their time. It's a waste of my time. Who's the right person to make the ask? Sometimes it's not me. Sometimes I'm there to tell the story, and because of their relationship, they ask. We've received two $50,000 gifts this last year, not because I asked, but because one of our ministry partners asked people in their sphere of influence. So as you raise funds, you need to ask three questions. First of all, am I asking for the right amount? Secondly, am I I asking at the right time? Third, am I asking for the right project? If a person is interested in evangelism, you don't talk about discipleship. If they're interested in leadership development, you don't talk about evangelism. If they're interested in medical missions, that's what you talk about. And if a church can provide 25% of your support, why would you only ask for 10%? And almost every church makes their missions budget uh, public, available. So do your your homework, do your research. If an individual is capable of giving $500, why would you only ask for 50? I've never had a person say, you know, I can do more. I've had a lot of people say yes with the amount that I asked for, but I've never had a person tell me, I've asked for too little. I've had people ask me for too much, but genuinely they'll say, let us pray about it, let us think about it, let's see if we can't meet your expectation. If you're raising funds for individual support, pick and choose those projects which an individual might have a strong interest or feeling. I counseled a a young man that was, was doing this, and over a period of years he began to find out You know, whenever he needed a new computer or some new technology, there was a group of people that would always respond when he asked for that that wouldn't respond for another ask. There was another group of people that would ask, would give when he asked to go on evangelistic outreach. And there was another group of people that gave whenever he asked. So he began to target his, um, his asks. And it was amazing how more effective, how much more effective he was. So by answering those three questions, it will allow you to raise funds faster and build even a greater bond between you and your ministry partners. You know, when you ask for something that they're interested in, that immediately strengthens the bond. The sixth key is see your people in person. Yes. It does. So that's building a relationship again before uh, being specific and asking something out of their passion. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the, the question is for the tape, you know, does this take time to, to build a relationship and find out what they're interested in? Yes, but it can also occur in one appointment if you ask the right questions. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. So you want to report on ministry results. People want to know, what is God doing through your ministry? You want to tell stories of changed lives. You know, still the number one magazine is Reader's Digest because it is stories of real people and real lives, and that's what people are interested in. Show an interest in them. Ask questions about them. What are they doing? What's God doing in their life? What can you pray for for them? What about their children? When you ask questions, you show an interest, and that in and of itself is a ministry to most people. And then pray for them, not on them. Oh, I didn't say that. 
Pray for them. You know, there have been people that I've known from church over years, and I would have thought, you know, they've seen God answer prayer in and through their life. But we began this process of saying, what can we pray for for you? And they would pray for us, and we would see answers to prayer. And people would say, you know, that's the first time in my Christian life I've seen God answer a prayer. That in and of itself is a ministry. Then you want to develop your partner, which is really a discipleship process. Some of the things that we've talked about in terms of God owning it all and all those kinds of things, that's going to occur over a period of time. You're going to be discipling your partner. Now, this gets back to the gentleman's question. What do you do on an appointment? Well, first of all, you're friendly and cordial. Be open and transparent, yet professional. As you begin to share about yourself, many times they will share about themselves. So you want to open the appointment by establishing rapport. Those are general questions. So, did you grow up in Louisville? How long have you lived in Louisville? What kind of things are you involved in in Louisville? Then, give a very clear statement of purpose. Why are you meeting with them? You know, Mr. Jones, I'm here to share with you what God has called us to do, the opportunities he's placed before it, and for you to be able to prayerfully consider having a part in it. Then discuss the tentative benefits. And these are the tentative benefits for them, not for you. What do they see the benefits being to become a partner with you in the ministry? And you find that out by asking open-ended questions. Open-ended questions are those things that can't be answered with a yes or no answer. As you develop these pertinent areas of interest and concerns, you have to be sensitive. You can't spend so much time there that you exhaust the amount of time that you have. And as I said, ask probing questions that, where they have to share something about themselves, not just a yes or no answer. Then relate their interest to the gospel. If they tell you what they're interested in, share with them how your ministry is meeting that particular burden that they have and how it relates to the gospel. And then be friendly, obviously. The presentation is where a lot of the motivation and education takes place, which are the two main elements of a successful presentation. First of all is education. Education increases their knowledge about the ministry, the organization, what it is you're doing. Motivation increases their excitement and their vision. If you don't increase their excitement and vision, just because you've educated them doesn't mean they're going to make a decision to become financially involved. Now, there's four key elements. Be able to share your testimony either about how God called you into the ministry, how God called you to Christ, how God continues to call you, three to five minutes at at the most. What is your specific involvement in the ministry? Tell stories of changed lives. Two or three stories, well-told stories, help a person to understand what it is you're doing than all the literature you can leave with them. And then check for understanding. And you don't say, so do you understand what it is I'm doing? But you say something like, so Mr. Jones, have I done an adequate job in sharing with you what God is doing through the ministry? In other words, you keep the burden on yourself. Because if they say, well, no, I don't understand this or that, you need to go back and, and deal with that before you ask them for the gift. And then you need to have a successful close. So first of all, you want to summarize the benefits of their becoming a a partner. You want to share the concept of partnership, that together they with others will join together with you in a partnership to accomplish what God has called you to do. Share your specific financial needs. Don't go and say, you know, I need $120,000 to be able to go to my ministry assignment. Break it down into, you know, God's called me. Uh, I believe he wants me at, at, at my ministry assignment by in six months. Therefore, in order to reach that goal, 
I'm prayerfully seeking $500 in monthly support this week. Because a, a gift of $100 in relationship to $500 seems much more important than a gift of $100 in relationship to $120,000. Then ask for a particular dollar amount. There's two things that I would say here. First of all, if you're talking to someone who is a referral, people tend to spend time in the same social economic strata that they, where they are. And therefore, if someone is giving to you at the level of $100 a month and they introduce you to someone else, you can be fairly certain that they would be able to give at $100 if they were so led to do so. If you don't know, then at least ask for a range. The average gift to an individual who raises their support is about $67 a month. So you could ask for $100, $70, $75, or $50 a month, and you would be in a, in a, a place where most people are able to respond. Then ask in the right way. Don't ever ask for, would you like to support my ministry? Because if they say no, they've, they've closed the door, you don't ever have an opportunity to go back. But if you say, do you feel God is leading you to become a partner with me for $100, $75, or $50 a month at this time, and they say no, now they're just saying no to the timing of the gift, which leaves the door open for you to continue to develop the relationship and give them the opportunity to get involved. So you never allow a person to say no to you personally but always to the timing of the gift. And then, this is the hardest part, allow the person to respond. Be quiet. You know, I've had people tell me, you know, so-and-so was here, he asked me, and I'm trying to pray and ask God, and he starts talking, or she starts talking. You know, once you've made the ask, just be quiet and let God work in the heart of the person that you're speaking with. Then conclude the appointment with a review of the contribution process. What will occur when they give? Tell them you're developing the support, uh, the prayer team. So you ask them for prayer requests. Share with prayer, prayer with them prayer, prayer requests that you want them to pray for for you. And then thirdly, ask for referrals as we talked about earlier. So in conclusion, be a friend raiser, not a fundraiser. Successful ministry partnership development is about relationships. If you look at the, at, at, at the New Testament, the models that are there are all about relationships. The Apostle Paul had relationships with the churches that were supporting him, that he was writing to, that he was asking for their support. So be a friend raiser. Don't look at your ministry partners strictly as an ATM. Give me your money so I can go do my ministry. But it's got to be together as partners we can accomplish thus and so. Give your best to the work of the master. And to realize that raising money is not something you do to someone, but something you do for someone. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 to 14. This is on the sheet, so I'm going to run through it fairly quickly, so I might be able to take one or two questions. But if you look at this, the Apostle Paul says, first of all, all grace will abound to you, the giver. Secondly, you will have all that you need, meaning the giver will have all that they need. Thirdly, you will have an abundance for every good work. The results of your righteousness will increase. You'll be made rich so you can become more generous. Thanksgivings will go to God from the asker. You will supply the needs of the ministry. Thanksgivings will go to God from the recipient of the ministry, that is, your target audience. You will prove your position in Christ through your giving. The recipients will glorify God, those who benefit from the ministry. The recipients will pray for the givers, if not by name, at least collectively. The recipients will long to know the givers personally. 
So you can go back and you can, you know, do a Bible study on that on that passage. Uh, any questions? I realize I've kind of gone through it, giving you a drink with a fire hose, but there's a lot of material to cover in a, in a short amount of time. Any questions? Yes. Let me just say, as you're leaving, if you want a copy of the PowerPoint, sign up back there or leave your, your stickers. There, there is a movement, especially for larger gifts, of outcomes management. You, you, you are right. Everybody requires or expects that you're going to report back to them what God has done. Larger gifts typically want to be more fact-based, but... But they also want to hear the stories. They want to know about the changed lives. It is true in certain areas, like if you're working in a Muslim area, you know, to see two Muslims come to Christ may be as important as seeing 5,000 come to Christ in Africa. You know, so part of that is what you ed- how you educate them through the meetings, through your prayer letters, that, in fact, this is the reality of the area in which we're working. So you have to adjust expectations, but then, yes, you do have to give them reports. And if a person is more of what I call an investor mentality, they, requires more, they require more reports more frequently. But you can do that in one page to them and not even tell a story. Just share with them the facts and figures. To that mentality, that's ministering to them because you're giving them what they want to know. question is a range of time that you should be involved on, a, say, a monthly or weekly basis in developing your ministry partner's friend raising. I would say that if, you, if you've already raised your support and you're at, at 100% or 110%, which is what your goal ought to be, at least 10% of your time ought to be involved in ministering to your supporters. I encourage ministries to put that expectation in the job description. That regardless of what you're doing, part of our expectation is that you will spend time ministering to those that are allowing you to be here. Uh, So if you have a 40-hour work week, which probably none of you do, um, that's four hours a week. If it's 60 hours a week, that's six hours a week. I find if I don't build that into my schedule, I'll never have time to do it. Uh, Now, I would also say it's also a great opportunity to involve other people. You know, for many years, we didn't address our own envelopes. We didn't stamp our own envelopes. We didn't fold our own letters. We didn't stuff our own envelopes. We didn't drop them in the mail. We took the letter to several people who were uh, volunteers, and they handled all that aspect for us. So we could be more involved in personal communications Versus the mass communications. Yes? Is there a general rule about how many, like, newsletters we can send a year for, like, weekly prayer? Okay, the question is, is there a general rule about how many prayer letters or a prayer request you ought to send in any given period of time? I'm going to share with you a major donor wrote to an organization, and I'm going to boil a letter down to this. My wife and I have decided no monthly prayer letter, no monthly check. Think about that for a minute. We all expect monthly donors to give monthly. They expect to hear from us monthly. Anything you do over and above that is icing on the cake. 
sending prayer requests. People that I know don't get tired of hearing prayer requests unless they never hear the outcome. So if you send a prayer request, be sure to let people know what God is doing, what God is doing as a result of their prayers and the time they're investing. Okay? That means my time is up. If you want to come up and ask me questions, I'm happy. When does the next group come in here? Okay, so I'll stay here as long as, as anybody wants me to. Remember, uh, there are evaluation sheets to, to fill out. And if you want a copy of the PowerPoint, please sign up on the sheets in the back or put your sticker there. Thank you all for coming.